WilderUtopia.com celebrates world culture and literary expression and our inspiration sources from folklore, myth, and storytelling, as well as the rituals and traditions of the many peoples of the planet. My name is Jack Ide, and let's go on a wild ride into the wilderness of literary imagination. It's a venerable carnival of the animals out there. If you put your ear to the ground, you can hear them coming. Welcome to the Santa Barbara Literary Journal YouTube channel. I am Silver Webb. I am the editrix of the Santa Barbara Literary Journal. If you're not familiar with us, uh, twice a year we put out a print journal of fiction, stories, lyrics, art, mostly centered around writers in Santa Barbara or writers who are connected to the Santa Barbara Writers Conference. And if you're not familiar with us, please visit us at SantaBarbaraLiteraryJournal.com. I am also the founder of Porta Books, and I am very pleased to be interviewing today Jack Eit for the Santa Barbara Literary Journal. Jack is a novelist, urban theorist, environmental journalist, as well as editor and publisher of the culture blog Wilder Utopia. His fiction has won multiple awards with work featured in literary journals, newspapers, and opinion editorial websites. He has recently contributed the story City of Illumination to Delirium Corridor here, which is an anthology of surreal stories curated by Max Talley and published by Board of Books. His story must be good as it has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and being a gracious fellow, he has agreed to speak with me today about all things literary and surreal. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for inviting me. Mm -hmm. uh, so the call for stories, the Delirium Corridor, asked for the surreal, the strange, altered states, noir, and beyond. Tell me a little bit about City of Illumination, the process you went through in writing it, and how it kind of fits into the theme or the feel of the book. Yeah, well, thank you. The story, actually, I endeavored to write a story about a Dia de los Muertos journey, a Day of the Dead journey to the underworld. That, At least that's the idea that I had when I started this. And I started it before Delirium Corridor came out. And I had the idea of the main character on the last day of his life, which was Halloween, having going on this journey across the river and through the many stages that you know if you if you go into the mexica and the aztec myths and and the, the history behind it there's this incredible journey that the soul takes going into the land of the dead Mictlan. i realized that that was a, a a big thing to take on and a culture that that I'm not part of, and and so I, I I held off on it. And when Delirium Corridor came up, I had some other ideas about how to finish this story in in, in a way, having it be more set in Los Angeles, but but going Day of the Dead version of my own. You know, I come from Sicilian American heritage, uh, grandparents who came from Sicily, and and 
some of the history there, as well as what's going on in Los Angeles. There's there's this underground network of tunnels and history behind it. There's some talk about the lizard people who who have existed, and these are not indigenous stories. <laughs> these are these are urban legend stories, and all of it was rich territory to to go in. It really is a question of where do you go when you die is kind of and, and is also in in the great mythological heritage of you know there's a lot of incredible stories throughout the world about people who it wasn't their time to die but they go down into these lands of the dead and that's kind of what i was thinking when I put this story together well your your land of the dead is basically an incredibly surreal strange party under the sewers of LA that obviously extend to this other world that you envisioned. It's an interesting party. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> it features a goddess figure at the, the center of it as the kind of the locus of this party that your character Edmundo runs into and observes. And can you remind me and tell the listener who that figure is and what she represents? This society of uh, the Owl of Minerva, and I don't know a lot. Uh, there's, there's, uh, it's fiction, and it's, it's sort of a blending of the urban legend side of Los Angeles. It's also a blending of the culture uh, that I've experienced, the underground so-called culture that I don't do much lately. Um, more of my my younger days, running around when I first came to Los Angeles as a graduate student at UCLA. And I was fascinated. I came to Los Angeles because of the culture of the place, the, the diversity, the blendings of the music, the gatherings of different types of people, the art. And so I spent a lot of time in my disabused time in youth to going to these underground type parties. And, uh, you know, you meet a lot of characters, but also I was blending it with some mythological currents there and the idea and i and and it also still sticking with the day of the dead theme because the the main character edmondo's partner comes from mexican-american heritage and she's getting prepared to celebrate her they're both getting prepared to celebrate dia de los muertos and she blesses him with an instrument from her cultural history and and this instrument you can find in in some of the temples down in in, uh, uh, southern Mexico and Chiapas in in some of the murals and and, you know some of the Mayan temples and and so it has it was sort of a talisman for him to come back in a way but also it was a talisman of protection so and and also just the blending of the multiple cultures that Los Angeles is, um, because there's the main character's own history of, you know, Italian, Sicilian, Greek, Greco, Roman, historic, with this Mayan, Azteca history. And then there's so many other people coming together, which I, I touched on a little bit. We're getting way beyond how the story represents, but the ideas that we're in and creating what the it was really an anteroom to the land of the dead. And I, 
I, I was kind of blending something that I also experienced down in Guatemala because I've done a lot of research on Shibaba, which goes back to the mythology of the Mayan and, and it's an underworld there. And I, I traveled to the, the area that um, the Popol Vuh, which is the creation myth for the Maya people in Alta Vedapaz of Guatemala, they had this incredible network of caves. And so the land of the dead Shibaba is set in these caves. And so I went to, to tour through these caves and I, I met some incredible Maya Kekchi amigos who, who graciously brought me into so many of these caves. And, and I was remembering this one cave in particular where we went further and deeper down and this is complete darkness under there, you know, and you have, we actually had candles. I had a little flashlight on my head, I think, but my guides went in with candles, which is interesting and slippery and extremely dangerous at times. And we came to a point, an end, where it was this body of water. And all we heard was this, uh, these voices or this laughing. It sounded like sisters laughing. And, and although none of us talked about it then, we talked about it later. But my guide said, no, we couldn't. We, we had to turn back there. And I felt like this this uh, underground scene was kind of a similar thing. Like, if you keep going on, you're going into something else and, and finding a way to get the heck out of that cave <laughs> and, and getting out of this underground world was was important. So those are some of the ideas that's flowing around here. When the women start laughing, Jack, it's time to back up and get out of the cave. <laughs> it, you know what? It was a beautiful laugh. It was sweet. Okay. It was ch childlike. It was it was really magical and beautiful. Um, and I've I've visited this cave and this this village multiple times and have have continue. And I'm I'm writing about that But it's very hard to when you take on another culture's history and mythology, you, you, you know, the cultural appropriation, the dangers of gringos before me who have abused these stories. You know, one that comes to mind is Mel Gibson trying to do a apocalypto about the Mayan. Uh, and, and he blended a bunch of stories together. I mean, on one level, it was the first movie ever filmed in Yucatec Maya, which is a, a pretty amazing accomplishment. But on the other hand, there, there were all sorts of things that, that didn't treat the history properly and appropriately. And one could argue that things didn't turn out well for Mel after that. And the spirits have a lot of power and don't kid yourself that, that they don't. And so honoring the, the source material is really important. So that, that's, that's one of those things anyone who travels to foreign lands has to keep in mind. Well, I've never had the sense from your writing that you weren't honoring the cultures that you visit and engaging with them very respectfully, in fact. And I like the, I like the idea that even though the story is set in modern Los Angeles, that the, the land of the dead or the anteroom, this anteroom of strange and curious creatures that he meets, really is just underneath his feet. He just has to look. He just has to walk down to enter into it and I like the idea that you're making you're making it accessible to anyone 
in that sense, your characters don't have to travel to distant lands to go toward the within. Even if the within is strange and scary and maybe not where your character in window wants to stay for the night. But it's uh, one thing that's really noticeable to me in this story and in a lot of your, not all of your stories, but some, is the presence of the city, the presence of the urban. And so let me read for everyone a, a section of your story. Edmundo saw clouds. When would it rain? He could think of nothing else while driving to work. He admired the serpentine contrails striping the sky, but he had to focus as cars ahead clamored for preeminence. A helicopter strafed him from above, eye in the sky, noting his movements, surveilling his surrender to required presence at the fifth floor arts, arts district gentrified condo down the river wash from where he heard about a suicide of an underappreciated screenwriter, almost a Sunset Boulevard cliché, except the guy did not end up at a starlet mansion west of the Strip, but crumpled and bloody at the bottom of a dry culvert, swarmed by maggots and cockroaches. People wondered if he was rolled before he jumped from the bridge into the graffiti dry gulch or after he hit the bottom. No rain, no hope, no one cared. Why did Inmundo have no hope? You have hope. A city official sat next to him in the car. Take a left. He took a left, admiring how the hills careened off toward the exotic weedy cement culvert set apart by 12 striped lanes, guardrails, and chained link. The helicopter seemed to have taken over the steering wheel, and the city official said, we have assumed control. Drones like these documented the city's collective pain and sorrows as a gasping civilization in deep decline from thousands of feet in the sky. This is how it ends. The city official and his pet drone were escorting Inmundo to his demise. Of this, he became certain. So you're kind of writing about a futuristic L.A. It's not quite set in the modern. It's a little bit surreal in that way. But certainly it you present a sense of the city that is kind of corruptive to the soul. And so I wondered, how does that relate to your actual feelings about Los Angeles? You've lived there for some time. You, you, you've already mentioned the reasons why you were attracted to it. I just wondered, a lot of authors take a city and make it part of their, the landscape of their stories. And I wondered if you wanted to speak a little bit more about Los Angeles in that way. Yeah, well, I um, I come from I, I'm a I'm an urban planner in exile. Although I still step into that role, but I've stepped away from that role because it's so frustrating to try and change the way things to to it's one thing to envision a better way to live in more in concert with the natural environment, and it's another thing to to get down and dirty and and fight those changes and, and work through the system. And, and it's a political system, it's an economic system, and it's a human nature system that are all Byzantine and beautiful and ugly and horrific and awful <laughs> altogether. And so uh, 
and I can't, and I do environmental advocacy as well. And, you know, part of my blog, Wilder Utopias, was brought about to stop writing to the LA Times and, you know, banging my head against that, what used to be their downtown offices and, and just start putting out the positive or negative, creative or destructive messages that were necessary to envision a better universe. This City of Illumination, now we have a title, City of Illumination, it's very much a climate change story embedded. Obviously, it's not about climate change, but this, there's no rain. Um, but this is a process. Um, his his partner wore her Halloween costume or Day of the Dead costume. She's Ishel, the woman of the water. And, you know, it's it's about praying for rain. It's about figuring out how to survive in a place that is dying slowly from not enough rain or lack of connection to what the native reality, this is Tongva land here. We're very cognizant of, and I work a lot with the native folks here, the, you know, the, the Shumash to the north, the Tongva, the Tataviam and the Ahachanan to the south. And sort of the last people who had a really strong connection for this land and, and understood how to live within the difficulties of a place that rains sometimes a lot, sometimes very, very little. Um, they had no agriculture. They lived off the native plants out there. They knew those plants. They knew the plants that you could heal yourself with, eat from, and protect yourself, use for products. We as settlers to this land know nothing about it. We build, uh, you know, neighborhoods that are completely divorced from that place. We, we remove all the, the natural topography. The, the water courses are turned into cement. Uh, one of the issues in, in the story is about the LA River and how it's this concrete mess. I do a lot of work on trying to re- think rivers and how to rediscover this, the fount of life in this natural ecosystem uh, that, that, that our forebears uh, with their engineering prowess and, and real estate development mind have created these, these river systems that basically drain the water straight into the ocean. So I would love to get the heck out of Los Angeles and go hide in, uh, on a mountainside. But these days, of course, the mountainside is looking at the potential of burning down anyways, given what we're facing. A lot of the mountainsides that I truly love and would love to just live in a little cabin forever and be happy, I recognize that cabin could burn at any time in this ecosystem because of, you know, so many things that we humans have brought into our lives to make life easier. And, and we have all these secondary effects. So, Part of my work in the world, I've traveled a lot down into, as we talked about, Central South America and, and to a lot of other places. And I, I've lived with the Mesquite out in Honduras for quite a while. It's a novel that I'm hopefully going to be bringing forward soon. And, and I had the idea that I was just going to go live down with them and get the heck out of here. Well, in 2009, there was a coup sponsored by the Obama administration that overthrew 
the democratically elected government down there. And since 2009, Honduras has, has just turned upside down. And I've, I've had to experience that up front. And, you know, I only had one trip down there since then. And, and the reason is it's just, it's not the place it was. It's not necessarily safe. I, it could be safe. You know, I don't want to say the whole place is not safe. Incredible people, wonderful, amazing landscape. But the coup d'etat, overthrowing governments, uh, and what that means to everyone who lives under that system is really something that I had to face because I know what it was like before, you know, before that coup, and it was far from perfect, and it was still a colonial U.S. center there. It's where the Contra War was, was undertaken. I worked for the Sandinista government um, in Nicaragua some years before that. I had an upfront experience of the other side of, of the government that's fighting against the U.S. machine, and I recognized the problems inherent with the Sandinistas, the early Sandinistas, as well as today's Sandinistas, who are very flawed characters, but they're, they are holding the line against the drug traffickers, the multinational corporations, the complete invasion of the society, the overtaken by these. So it's none of these, these examples are, <laughs> are wonderful, but it's, uh, and anyways, I'm getting far away from what Los Angeles is. So I'll get back to that to say that, I had to go back to where my family now lives, to where I've been living, and try and make the place I live a better place. And it's also hard when you're of a certain mentality and, and political persuasion to have a community. Um, Los Angeles, as I said, there are there's openings for a lot of different people and different culture, and there's that here but it is a pretty difficult place to, to live on a daily basis. And so just take it a day at a time. Well, you've completely ruined my theory that you're a CIA operative, Jack. <laughs> well, I've worked for multiple <laughs> sides, that's for sure. Woo, okay. <laughs> um, so, all right, well, uh, let's see. In my opinion, anyway, you are an important part of the Santa Barbara writing community. I've met you quite a bit at workshops here and also at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference. I wondered if, if you could tell us how long you've been writing and are there any mentors or other people who you're willing to admit to that have shaped your writing along the way? Well, the Santa Barbara community helped me a lot because I had been writing for, I started on my writing road part as part of my traveling road, probably more than 10 years before I even started at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference uh, groups there. But I, I did recognize, I kept arguing with myself, well, maybe I should get an MFA. And, you know, because I had heard this person say, you know, if you're, everyone has a gift to give. No matter who you are, what you are, you have a gift to give. And you have to figure out a way to give that gift away. And if you can't give that gift away, and this actually came from Malidoma Asome, um, who's an African, just incredible guy. And so I've been trying to give the gift away of my writing. And I had an agent who 
early on agreed to represent the first novel that I was writing and it ran into all, ran aground for a bunch of reasons, most of them real, but I was having trouble giving my gift away. And, and Mali Domasome said, you've got to find a community to, you know, to help you find a way to give your gift away and to get better at it, whatever it is. And, and that's the way that you can, you can get to that point to do what you need to do. And I, I feel for me, the Santa Barbara writers community and the conference there became, and my first time I went in 2007 and uh, I was talking to, and I became friends with a lot of the people who ended up uh, running it, Monty Schultz and, and Max Talley, who you know is, is the editor of this anthology. And I was like, why do you people, you're supposed to go to a conference once and then go to another one, you know, where you meet other people and, I couldn't figure out why every year the same people came back to this thing. Well, since then, I mean, since 2007, I've been back and back and back. We continue to be part of part of an incredible group of people who have helped put things together. John Reed, who's been one of the mentors there, has, has helped a lot. Uh, Monty Schultz is another who I mentioned who, who bought the conference and and incredible writer uh, of his own and, and a pretty amazing human. And, and, and there's Stephen Vessels, who has also been publishing um, lots of incredible stuff. He's an amazing writer. That was the thing we, and of course, Max, we had, we had a, a group early on with that Stephen and, and Matt was part of and, and a couple other folks that were a bunch of crazy people. And, but the work was really powerful. Um, I recognized there was a lot of talent in this group and that, that was important how we helped shape each other's work. And, and uh, over the years, things have changed. We don't quite have, we, in fact, probably a year after it started, we stopped that writer's group, but we still all work together. And so I think, I think that's important to have a community and that's really what the Santa Barbara Writers Conference has done. And we'll see how it continues. It's always difficult to put on these affairs, but there's all sorts of people who come from all over the place who are part of this. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, it'll find a way to continue as soon as uh, the weird things going on in the world allow us to start meeting in person again. Well, professionally, I'm an editor. And so I, and also I, I edit the Santa Barbara Literary Journal. So I have seen a lot of manuscripts and a lot of different people's writings. And a lot of it blends together, especially for newer writers. I just, I see the same things over and over again. And your writing is extraordinary and it has its own voice and its own perspective. And your capacity for the lyric is incredibly strong and impacting. And so I think you're a gift to the, the writing community here. Your writing has been described as half drug trip, half travelogue, the movie The Emerald Forest in the form of a sustainably sourced mushroom latte drunk out of the same glass by Carlos Castaneda and Hunter Tossin. I know that's pretty big to live up to. Uh, but let me read another excerpt for people. 
from your story in Delirium Corridor. After showering and dressing, he emerged into the outside world of cawing crows, bees buzzing the pepper trees and morning sunshine. Then reversing his steps, he backed into their decrepit, paint-peeling cottage, letting the metal screen door slam shut and put his arms around her. He kissed her lips and felt something else, a pulse, an electrode shock, the buzzing of hummingbirds. He pressed his lips harder against hers, trying to shut out the intrusion that must have been his dream of burnt metal and flashing red lights. It was Halloween after all. He ran hands over the curve of her back. She could not illume nor mitigate last night's darkness that hovered among their futon draped with Mexica blankets, designs, and strewn about rejected Halloween costumes in the cramped rental living room on a dead-end street in the rapidly gentrifying hills of the land of the angels. So we've kind of already touched on this, but your stories very often seem to address, uh, usually it's a male character who is seeking, he's seeking something. He's depressed by the modern world. He's aware of its destructive nature. He may be trapped in a job in a city, a context that he wishes to escape and cannot, searching for healing he may or may not find. I wonder, um, that element of a character who seems to be almost a voyeur, sometimes a quester, but almost just an observer of the times. Do you write these characters simply as observations? Are they a coping mechanism? Are they a hope in some sense for the future? Well, I think that hope for the future is an important aspect. I don't think, I don't think fiction is there's, you know, how you define fiction after it's written, you could say, well, there's a hope for the future here, or this, he was coping, this is a mechanism. I think that a lot of times the voice that you're referring to, I follow it. Like I don't put, I have an idea to start something, but I don't sort of know where it's going to go or how it's going to get there. And that's a, I don't recommend that to any writer really. And most people who do writing, they say, no, that's a really bad idea. Don't do that. Have an idea, put yourself on a path because really you do end up getting lost um, doing that. And that's why I'm a bit lost as a writer because I, I create these very broad tapestries that is really hard to live up to, but but it also, so I'm also very much inspired. I've talked a lot about folk tales, about the mythology, about the stories. Most of the writing is inspired by these stories. And so what are these stories? What did they mean to the traditional cultures that some are still utilizing these stories in, in that way? But it's more of an ancient thing, particularly in the Americas, North America. Um, it's more historic, but these these are ways of of learning about the land that you live in. You know, for me to understand the plants and the animals around you, you read these these stories. Um, I've spent a lot of time up in Montana, 
and written a little bit about what's going on up there. My cousin lives in the mountains in a cabin, and I've spent a lot of time learning about the traditional cultures and the stories there. And, you know, the way to, to learn about the bison, about the wolves, about, you know, all of these incredible, and there's so much life still happening. A lot of, you know, the, the conquest of the Americas sort of ended in Montana and Yellowstone is, is sort of one of the last bastions of that wildness of, you know, these incredible animals, the grizzly bears. And so learning through these stories of how you interpret the land, how you understand the land, and so much there are there are lessons. A lot of, a lot of the traditional stories kind of go on and on. It's hard to figure out. They, they don't always end up like a lot of the Greek myths. There's, there's the lesson, and it's an obvious lesson. Sometimes the lesson, most of the time, the lesson isn't very obvious. But it, there's a lot there to learn, and there's a system of respect and pulling your part. And those who don't have the respect often end up, uh, you know, the example, you know, those who don't listen to the frog woman who tells you, you know, as you're walking along, be careful as you walk forward. If Don't shoot at, at the monkey ahead. Just nod at the monkey and walk past it and you'll be okay. But the first two brothers said, ah, listen to that lady. I'm not going to listen to her. And they keep walking and they see that monkey and they shoot it and they end up dead. Both brothers. And it's the third brother who says, all right, lady, I li I'm listening to you. I hear you to listen to the frog woman and, and not think that you know the answer. There were probably a lot of things that, that the original explorers who came to this land from Europe they, they should have listened to a lot of things, and they didn't. And, you know, here we are <laughs> and trying to deal with it. So uh, I, I think that I think it goes back to uh, even as a little kid, I, I had a gift for writing and an expression. And in college, I said, well, I'm, I'm a major in creative writing, but you can't really make money as a creative writer. You know, so I went into urban planning, but I so it's part of that having this a way of also i think you know an artistic view of the world um, it's one thing to write a letter to your congressperson and say you know this is what we need to do and please listen to me and you know and, and i do a lot of that and i'm part of work that does that because i think it's important to take part in, in the political system and try and make it better. And I think democracy only works if all of us find something that we do well or that we have, that we care about or that we have a, a valid opinion. I, I don't have a valid opinion about every issue, so I, I can't, I can't go out there and pronounce on everything, but I have a few things that I, that I do have very dear to my heart. And so it's important for me to step up on those. And, and, but I also think that, um, and that's part of what fiction, fiction, you know, and I get, I get criticized a lot of times because I have characters who represent advocacy, you know, uh, who are talking about protecting things and people are like, Oh, that's, that's a little too much soapbox there, Jack. I, and I think the best fiction isn't, there should be people who represent that because that's that's reality. But 
a piece of work that is fiction should not be advocacy because there's so many grays to the world that we live in. And bringing people together, I mean, we have so many divisions out in the world right now. And art can bring people together, even people who totally disagree on political politics and economics and all these things, because we as humans are at our base, we are all the same. We are all one. Maybe that's why all those manuscripts keep coming across as the same, you know, piece of work, because we're a little bit too much the same. We need to differentiate <laughs> somewhat. But, um, you know, I think uniting people through art is important. And so that's why I think fiction and storytelling are an important undertaking in this world. So this is kind of an maybe an abstract question and you might not have an answer to it, but I wondered, so oftentimes when I'm discussing with writers where they find that voice, when characters start to come alive to them in their writing, where is that character coming from? You know quite surely it's, it's a character or a story that you've experienced in life and you're basing it off of that in some degree or another. But when we veer into the purely imaginative, where does that come from? And I wondered, of course, you can just say it's the unconscious or it's the collective unconscious, or it's just your, your brain's way of filtering all of your life experiences into something that is new and interesting. But I wondered if when you write, you have a sense of ever being guided because your spirit, your stories encompass a lot about various spirits, various kind of entities that represent walking between worlds. And I wondered if, when you write, do you have a sense ever of being inspired by something beyond yourself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, at least I hope. I mean, honestly, because that's a lot of times that that's the best writing. We're sort of conduits writers were not just uh, that whole concept of write what you know is important to to start off because if you write what you don't know then you know that becomes obvious but what we know we don't know everything we don't know and so how does one have a character you know i identify as male and, and i'm a white guy living you know this this life how do how do i inhabit a character who is female of a different race, a different age, a different world. Well, there's an art to that. So that a lot of times you can't do that. But but the best writing you have, we have, we have to inhabit people. You know, you could say the best writers are suffer a mild and not dangerous form of schizophrenia. They, they're able to have multiple personalities that come out. And they don't become too dangerous unless that's part of the story. And I think I think that level, it's part of the reason why a lot of the best writing that I do, you know, I have to be sort of alone. I do it late at night when there's quiet to, to go in. And it takes me time to get in that mindset. You can't just sort of switch from writing emails to friends and being on Twitter and all this stuff to, oh, okay, I'm going to imagine this story there's a process that i go through which requires me to sort of set apart a little bit from people and just regular day-to-day -day things i tend to stay up all night 
and I, I have very much the, the vampire's problem. Like I look out the window and I go, oh my God, the sun's coming up. Okay, I'm going to bed. But then again, when I've lived in a mountain cabin, because I think we all operate on an energy source. So living in Los Angeles, it's kind of like there's too many people on the internet right now. I got to get off. There's so many people operating during the middle of the day and there's so much energy around us that it's hard to go into this state of being directed by what, you know, being a medium for these things. I mean, in some ways it's a little bit, I've, I've done a lot of research of African traditions of, of Haitian voodoo. And, you know, I spent, I had two separate trips into Haiti and talking about spirits coming down and inhabiting. And it's interesting how this is just normal for in, in Haitian. Not everyone in Haiti is at all into voodoo. In fact, it's totally underground there and, and frowned upon in, in the day of light. But as soon as it gets dark and at night, then there's other things that come out. And it's just absolutely part of Europeans' mentality. These traditions, they seem so otherworldly that anytime they're represented in movies, popular culture, even even studies, they're seen as this crazy wild thing that happens. And oh my God, this is totally normal. Like, you know, my second day in Haiti, I'm brought down and I met some people and they sat me down and then they started playing some music and, you know, a couple of the women fell and they, you know, the spirit came down on them and they had, went through a whole process and had to carry off the people who fell on the ground and they were covering them with flower water and all this. And it was just, we were just sitting there hanging out. It was totally normal. It was nothing weird. It's an everyday thing. And that's really what the true magic is. And, and that's what the spirit and these spirits all, are all around us. Uh, the native people here, uh, they talk about listening to your ancestors and your ancestors are with you. They're not, like you don't have to go anywhere you have to just sort of have a connection like think about it or or whatever it is there's there's ways we don't have to go to some crazy way out of our way to connect with these guidance advice we have the idea is that we have you know we have spirit and animals that that are out there as guidance but they're also our ancestors um and you know regular European ways of looking at, well, that's weird. I don't really see, you know, all that. But, but the truth is we do have these helpers and, you know, I, I went through a process of learning and unlearning a lot of things to get in touch with, with what this means. And it's hard to do it in a world with the electric light. It was one of the biggest lessons that I had in living with people who don't have electricity and who don't have roads and, and who live in the old style of the light, the light of the moon and the light of the sun guide everything in the stars. Really sort of, you follow the stars every night, you know exactly which star is going to be up at what time and how to, you know, it's, it's, it's just a completely different connection with everything. And to come back into the city 
and to remember that because we still have those same stars up there and those same energies that are working on us and working with us. And, and the key is to work with the natural environments around us and to connect better. And so I think a lot of what, you know, getting back to the writing and all that is, you know, trying to find a way to, to unlearn all that stuff and to remember the important aspects, to, to remember who we are. Because the thing with myself of having to face, to bring in my own traditions and, and how, to, how to look at what the after-death traditions are, it's hard to even connect with where I came from, my Sicilian relatives, but I also have German, Irish on my father's side. And there's some pretty amazing traditions that are pagan, that are, you know, pre-Christian, but also Christian, and they mix together in incredible ways. And I think part of the problem of uh, the settlers of this land is people are so disconnected with who they are and where they've come from that, you know, they're, they're not in touch. They don't understand uh, what's going on around them. And so... Part of what I've dedicated a lot of work that I do, whether creative or, or whether just environmental advocacy, is is to get people to look around, to connect with the ground, to rethink how we how we operate, because we do have to think about this planet not just for tomorrow, but you know, seven generations, however many generations, it, it, it will continue forever. But will it continue with us, meaning our ancestors, or are we going to burn out um, pretty quick? And that's really something that's at risk. I'll just strike off my next question, which is, is there hope for humanity? We'll just say it's to be determined. I think there's hope. I absolutely think there's hope. I, I'll say that. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't do what I do. But we are uh, up against a hopeless reality that we have to overcome and we're not overcoming it well so i think for a lot of things i think we're doomed but as people as a society as a, as an earth system there's definitely hope every day there's hope and we can change our destiny it's not fixed i like that okay all right jack so i have one one more easy question for you, which is, I know you've been working on several novels that I hope to see out in the world someday. I know you work on, you are, I believe, at this point, the proprietor, the sole proprietor of wilderutopia.com, and you also have a regular podcast, I believe. And um, so let us know what's next, what's in the cooker, and how, how, what is the best way for people to find you and interact with your, with your work more? Thank you. Uh, my, my website's wilderutopia.com, mixing wilderness with utopia. Uh, and that's, it's a very broad set of work that I've been publishing since 2010. And part of it has environmental advocacy and part of it goes into traditional stories. Probably the most popular stuff on it is the traditional stories, the republishing or rethinking of stories from all over the world, really, and and how and valuing those as lessons as I've been talking about. 
we do have a podcast. I'm a producer on it. I, I don't. We have we have a couple different hosts, and we do environmental stories from a social justice frame. It's called Eco Justice Radio. KPFK Los Angeles has said they're going to put us back on um, this coming year. We'll see about that. But we're found out uh, just ecojusticeradio.org, and it's also part of socal350.org, which is an organization that I've co-founded. Uh, it's part of the 350.org, which is climate change advocacy, 350.org, 350 parts per million of carbon. Mm-hmm. It would be the stable um, level of carbon that we need in the atmosphere to uh, to have a climate that will work for us all. Um, we're at about 410 right now and spiraling out of control. So that's that's more of the environmental stuff that I that I do with a whole bunch of incredible people, and you know I keep up my uh, fiction writing. I'm working on this novel set in Honduras that you know I don't have a date that it's coming out yet, but it's it's pretty much finished. And uh, a couple other things that that are going to require some more reimagining, but. You know, I've been at work on a few different things for a long time. I have finished versions of them, but I'm, I'm not ready to say they're finished at all. So, and it's it's because my writing is, it veers on the poetic and takes on a different sort of tone to it. Uh, the mainstream publishers have, have uh, been, well, I mean, I, I, I think that, that particularly this novel set in Honduras I tried very much to write a straight-ahead story that goes A, B, C, D instead of going into surreal. There's some surreality that's part of it, but it's really an adventure story. And it's about what's going on in Honduras and what it's about colonization, the history of colonization, but it's also about the incredible Miskitu people, the folks on the Caribbean coast out there and they were the ones who I was living with in villages where no roads and no electricity you can reach it by boat and I spent years uh, going back and forth and living among them and and had really the honor of being shown so many things shared so many secrets with these people and, and you know this this gets to, um, they've given me a lot of gifts that that I'm trying to honor uh, them through this writing too. So that's been part of the process is, is um, honoring the message because they're like, well, how, how come you haven't published that thing? And I'm, well, you know, we're working on it because um, it is they they are people who have not gotten respect in the way uh, they were just hit. Uh, there were double hurricanes that hit this part of Honduras and Nicaragua just two months, month ago, month and a half ago. Direct hit to the little village of Bilwi, Puerto Cabezas in, in Nicaragua. Unimaginable. But, you know, in some ways they're, they're, they have what we don't have, meaning they don't have a lot of bridges and roads and things. Electricity's scant. So when the wilds of nature come in and blow everything down. Yeah. You know, their houses are destroyed and their way of, of growing crops are destroyed. So they definitely face massive dangers there, but there's not a lot of built environment out there. So 
they bounce back quickly in that way. But still, climate disruption and insanity, this is an example of it, of it being most significant to the people who are least at fault for, for polluting our, our atmosphere and causing this climate change. And so that's why it's imperative that, that the big shot nations really lead and, and change the way we, uh, we deal with the world. And also we just need people to help and respect these people living out in, the, out in places like that. So anyways, uh, working on putting that out. And so wilderutopia.com is, is a good way to connect with me and, uh, um, ecojusticeradio.org. Well, I'll list those in the information for the video, and I really encourage everyone to, um, to visit those sites and to keep an eye out for Jack's debut novel, which is surely coming any day now. Um, and if you're interested in Delirium Corridor, I, I may be biased, but I think Jack's story in it is wonderful. And if you want to read it in its entirety, you can. You can buy it on Amazon or you can go to our website, SantaBarbaraLiteraryJournal.com and purchase it there. And I hope that you will enjoy the story. So thank you for speaking with me today, Jack. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm so pleased that you're in Delirium Corridor and that you have lent your, lent your unique grace to it. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. This is Jack Eide from Wilder Utopia, coming to you from multiple undisclosed locations under a bank of coast live oaks next to a flowing stream that originates from deep underground. Find us at wilderutopia.com and we encourage everyone to get your mind out into the wild. <laughs>